It is often stated that of all the theories proposed in this century, the silliest is quantum theory. In reality, in this universe, the silliest thing is a podcast hosted by Kavi and Benjamin. So if you think quantum theory is silly, just listen to the show and you will see what silly really is. Eleven benevolent one. elephants. Eleven benevolent elephants. I eat giant cookies. I eat giant cookies. I eat giant cookies. That's good. All right, and that recording. concludes today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you remember, Welcome. by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the large Galilean moons of Jupiter. I eat giant cookies. Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. You're Ooh. welcome. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Now do also, all the like moons cookies. of Saturn. All right. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hyperion. That uh, one. I like it. Imperion. Hyperion. Welcome. Welcome, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to today's episode of Science Actually Presents the Nerd and the Scientist, where today uh, we are joined, as always, by ourselves, um, <laughs> your co-hosts. It's a pleasure <laughs> uh, to still be here. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to still be had. Um, <laughs> uh, today's episode, we are uh, continuing our countdown of... Uh, the top 20 myths about space and busting them. Bust them. Bust them good. So we did the first 10, our previous episode. Uh, space myth number 11. Mercury is the closest planet to the sun and therefore the hottest one. That is what they would want you to believe. But that is not the case. Unfortunately, no. Um, it is not Mercury, but actually Venus that is the hottest planet. And that is because uh, even though Venus is not the closest planet, um, it has an atmosphere and atmospheres trap heat. And so the greenhouse effect has trapped so much heat that the surface of Venus is significantly hotter uh, than Mercury. Mercury does have a thin atmosphere, but not uh, not quite as uh, insulating as Venus's. Nope. Venus's atmosphere is something like 90 times denser than ours. It's insanity. It's hot. Yeah. And the pressure is incredible. Um, if you get to the bottom, you will be boiled and burnt alive before you even made it to the surface. Yeah. And uh, conversely, probes, right? the, the side of Mercury that's facing away from the sun is so insanely freezing it has glaciers of salt it's it's just it's a it, one the side facing the sun obviously is incredibly hot but the other side is just beyond <laughs> cold <laughs> yeah, yeah it's one. kind of yeah it, it's kind of weird to think about but you realize that the heat coming directly from the sun is only part of the story it's it's about how you actually maintain and sustain that heat uh, right. that's that's what does it yep um next on the list saturn uh what about it is well it's very pretty and uh it's quite beautiful and we like it that's why we put a ring on it however saturn is not actually the only ringed planet in the solar system 
Um, it is not. People used to think so. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what, what can you tell me about this one, Benjamin? Not only is Saturn uh, not the only ringed planet in the solar system, all the gas giants are ringed planets. Uh, Jupiter has a faint ring uh, that we've discovered is quite easy to see. The closer you get the, a probe you sent out there gets to Jupiter, the more easier it is to see Jupiter's very fine, very thin ring. Uh, Saturn has the most prominent ring system. It's incredibly uh, broad and bright because it has just so many countless dust particles and snowballs orbiting that it reflects so much light from the sun. This makes it incredibly easy to see. But Uranus, if you keep going, has a ring. And Neptune has a ring. Uranus's ring, I think it's Uranus's ring, is so incredibly dark. It's like soot, but it's there. And it's easy to see if you pass Uranus and look back and you have the sun and the glow of the sun behind Uranus, you can actually see it. And not just planets, but there are other ringed things in our solar system as well. There's an asteroid, uh, Chariklo, which is somewhere between Saturn and Uranus's orbits. It has two rings, a 90 mile across uh, asteroid, little uh, minor planet has its own little ring system. So rings are actually uh, not just something that Saturn does, but it happens a lot. They're everywhere. And it makes sense. It's it's often how things will uh, form on different scales in the universe. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, even uh, planetary systems around stars will start by forming in a a disk shape called a proto-planetary disk. Um, What's interesting with Saturn recently, is you might have heard about this in the press, that people are talking about how Saturn's rings are about to disappear. People were losing right. their minds. <laughs> and how Basically, soon will that just happen? because. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there's just going to be this effect where um, I think over the next year, there'll be a few months, uh, like three, four months in a row, where Saturn's rings will not be perceptible. They will appear to disappear um, just because of the angle. Um, Saturn is orbiting the sun and that angle relative to Earth. Um, but they're not they're not going anywhere. Yes. If you look straight oh, down on Saturn's rings, they are incredibly thick. If you look at them edge on, it's insanely thin compared to the rest of the to the thickness of it. And so if you look at it edge on from what is it, nine hundred million miles away or something like this. Uh, something like that. It's so far away. It, you, it's too thin to see. Kind of like a previous science fa- uh, myth that you can see the Great Wall of China from space. You're so far away from it, it becomes so thin you can't see it. Same thing with the uh, rings of Saturn if you look at them edge on. There you go. That's pretty cool. There you go. This, this next myth. This next myth actually I love because <laughs> I did not know this. I didn't I either. Honest, I actually thought it was. Uh, well, let's get to it. Uh, when a spacecraft re-enters the Earth's atmosphere, it gets incredibly hot because it is have, it's, it's from the friction of just screaming through our, our atmosphere. It turns out that's actually only a small part of what makes <laughs> the fireball around a re-entering spacecraft 
not just the friction of the atmosphere, which does happen, but um, the spacecraft re-entering the atmosphere is shooting down so incredibly fast that the air that it's pushing through doesn't have time to get out of the way, which does contribute to the friction. But the air molecules are kind of pinned beneath uh, the spacecraft that's coming in and more and more and more and more molecules of our atmosphere just start stacking up on uh, upon each other underneath the spacecraft which creates an insane amount of pressure and that pressure produces intense intense heat that's about it really that's it's about excellent. it yeah it's, it's it's pretty insane um, generally speaking, you'll you'll see this strong um, kind of linear uh, relationship between pressure and temperature uh, all across science in all sorts of ways. Uh, but generally, uh, pressure times volume is going to be proportional to uh, the temperature. So if you imagine um, that you're basically decreasing the volume of a small, uh, you know, basically you're bunching up all of these air particles and gas particles into a smaller area, the pressure is going to continue to rise as a result to kind of balance the equation. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't know this one either. Uh, It wasn't clear to me, Um, but it was definitely a a fun fact. (laughs) Do you see what he did there? You guys see what he did there? Kavi from fun fact science just totally wove in the name of his little SciComm channel fun fact science because he learned some fun facts about science this is why you need to have a podcast people <sighs> kavi <laughs> kavi you are a star and you twinkle like one hey oh, twinkle those <laughs> why do stars twinkle oh man stars stars don't do actually for the most part <laughs> what if bad things happen to good stars? Um, <laughs> no. Why do, sky, stars, do stars twinkle? Stars only appear to twinkle. Um, there, there are stars out there that do all sorts of interesting things that vary on different timescales, but that's not what we see when we see twinkling. Uh, when we see twinkling, what we're seeing actually are atmospheric effects. Uh, because the light coming from the stars is hitting different layers of the atmosphere. And as it hits those layers which are moving, the ray of light will kind of refract and change uh, as it moves down towards us. And so the result of that kind of shift um, makes us see the light coming from kind of a moving direction. And that is what... uh, will make stars appear to twinkle. Um, with planets, you'll be able to tell a planet from a star in the night sky because planets do not twinkle um, nope. because there are multiple points of light coming from a planet. Um, whereas a star, it's so far away that generally our eyes are only able to perceive that as a single kind of point source moving towards us. Excellent. Also, there's... Um correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also more uh, uh, debris between us and the stars than there is between us and the planets. Like clouds of gas and dust that could possibly be between uh, us and the stars. Is that a possible contributor to a twinkle? Or that's just something else entirely? 
so so I don't like what you're saying is is physically correct and 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 is a thing that happens, but I don't know if those effects are perceptible to the human eye. Um, so mm. what you're describing is something really interesting called scintillation. Um, That's right, and we do see it with radio telescopes, right? We'll see uh, you know radio light coming from distant galaxies, um, and the light will scintillate. It will vary, um, you know, up to a few percent. Uh, or, or even several percent uh, in, in, you know, of its total brightness as it passes through intervening gas. Um, but I do not think that that effect happens on the scale of, uh, of what we're talking about. The twinkling that we're talking about, what the human eye sees. Uh, optical, All atmospheric. Yeah, that's atmospheric. Mm. Okay. One more and before we do our little mid-show break from an incredibly cool sponsor coming up sure comet tails we love comets when they come into our night sky and they're beautiful beautiful things to watch and a comet tail is an incredibly long uh structure that follows behind a comet and it tells you exactly which way the comet is going true or false so well yes but actually no (laughs) yeah so this is um this is something that it does tell you the way that it's going, but not in the way that you'd think. Um, it kind of it's something that I first learned about. I think with uh, what was it, comet Neowise that had two tails, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason that you see these two tails is a comet is you know a collection of um, ice and dust, and when you have something icy that comes towards something hot like the sun, um, you have a, a, a process that basically causes that ice to turn into uh, particulates and kind of steam off and push off this kind of like water gas into space. But when this happens, um, it's going to happen in the direction opposite to the direction of the radiation from the sun, right? So, so basically whenever you have particles coming from the sun, those particles will be the thing that produces the tail of the comet. So it's not necessarily the direction it's moving in, but it's going to be opposite to the direction that the solar radiation is coming from. Mm-hmm. It gets blasted straight back from the sun. Yep. If you drew a line from the sun to the comet, the tail would follow that line. Yeah, and so it's a really cool effect that you see that as the as a comet kind of passes its closest approach to the sun, um, it will the tail direction will change. I love it. Comets are fun awesome. fact. Yeah, fun fact. Science. Nice callback again. Uh, another one. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for today's commercial break. I can't wait. Who is our lucky sponsor today? Uh, I can't wait to find out because this is the first time that I'm reading this. <laughs> oh Attention, cosmic explorers. Experience the cosmos like never before with a quantum celestial voyager, your personal ticket to the stars. <laughs> this high-tech telescope is not just for experts. It's designed for everyone. Easy to use and educational brings the wonders of the universe to your fingertips. But that's not all. The Quantum Celestial Voyager comes with an AR system for interactive stargazing. Imagine constellations and galaxies like never before. 
order now and receive a free galactic explorer kit, exclusive guides, posters, and more. Elevate your stargazing at quantumcelestialvoyager.com or call 1-800-SPACE-FUN. That's 1-800-SPACE-FUN. Blast off into a world of discovery today. Okay. <laughs> that sounded a little too good. It really did. <laughs> for those for those listening at home, that was um, chat chat GPT's take on my question. Write me a radio commercial for a non-existing space-related product. <laughs> that sounds like it exists. That sounded way too good. <laughs> oh man, I want to read the full version it. later. Because oh, the, the original version that ChatGPT gave me was a little bit long, so I asked it to shorten it. Um, I said, please shorten it, which is hilarious that we still choose to say please and thank you to ChatGPT. Um, <laughs> but the full version had like a whole interplay of like the narrator and then two customers. And there was, there was a whole like like a testimonial section. It was wild. Wow. Way to go, ChatGPT. I'll send it to you. <laughs> Seriously. Back um, to it. Back to the Man. show. Yes. Back what do we have show. next? Next is a very hot topic. Meteorites. Meteorites are hot. And the um, the myth is that if uh, you see a meteorite on the ground, uh, don't touch it. It's quite hot. But actually, it's not. By the time a... Well, a meteor is hot. Why is it going through the process of streaking through the atmosphere and catching fire and doing a little bit of that uh, re-entry stuff we talked about earlier? Um, mm-hmm. By the time it hits the ground, it's had a long fall through the atmosphere. It has slowed down. It has cooled down considerably. By the time it hits the ground, it is then a meteorite. And most of the heat by that point has dissipated if you see a meteorite in the ground of course be cautious but do not expect to burn your hand off it probably will happen yeah i guess it's kind of like um aluminum foil um or silver foil as some people might call it um you know it it retains as a thin layer of heat around something um but on the inside um, the temperature will kind of be whatever it has been previously. So um, in this case, these are rocks that have been traveling through space for billions of years. Um, they are not hot. They have no internal source of heat. So it's just that that kind of outer wrapper and that outer layer that's causing, uh, that, that is heated uh, during this process. The rest of it is nice and cool. That was a good one. I like that. Yeah. The next one's controversial. I don't think you'll like it. I have. uh, Well, the next one is that you can hear sound in space. But I believe this is already settled in 1979 in the first (sighs) Alien movie where they said, space, no one can hear you scream. So I I think we're done with that one. No, it's settled. No one can hear you scream in space. Oh, here it comes. Here it comes. (sighs) Kavi hears people scream in space. (laughs) Yeah, I'm haunted by the screams of people in space. (laughs) I think 
generally speaking, um, the way that sound works is, you know, it's a wave, it's a pressure wave that moves through material. So on Earth, we hear sound because something creates a pressure wave through the air. That pressure wave in the air travels and hits our eardrum, and then the eardrum vibrates, you know, in line with that pressure wave. Um, and that's it. That's how sound travels on Earth. In space, um, space is almost entirely empty. You know, you're talking about, you know, a, a couple of atoms uh, per cubic centimeter. So there's, there's not a lot of stuff for a pressure wave to travel through, um, which is why generally people say, and it's pretty much correct, that, you know, in space, you can't hear sound, you can't hear anything. I would say, though, that in the denser regions of space and around the centers of galaxies or distant uh, nebulae or, or, or clusters, there would be regions dense enough for a pressure wave to travel. And we can measure those pressure waves. And even if those frequencies that the waves are moving at are not necessarily ones that our ears could normally hear, we could, you know... Um, upscale them to frequencies that we could hear. So there are all sorts of cool um, sonification software tools out there that you could use for stuff like that. So that was my kind of uh, little but <laughs> drawn out caveat about the whole uh, not being able oh, to hear good. space. That's very good. And also touched upon the next space uh, myth, that space is a completely empty vacuum. It is not completely empty it is not the most emptiest parts of space you can find a few with what is it every cubic meter of space you can find at least a few atoms Mm -hmm. tooling about yeah i think i think in the in the interstellar medium it's like you know one atom per every cubic centimeter so that's like one you know (laughs) one or one hydrogen uh, for every area that's the size of of a, of a dice, um, but that's not empty. And the, you know that's kind of on average. There are regions where there are um, more particles, um, as I said before. You know, a bit denser. But yes, it's not completely empty, and it could never be completely empty because you know there are all of these wacky quantum mechanical things that prevent us from. Um, you know, knowing something completely, having a completely zero energy or completely a zero particle. Um, yeah, but it's it's pretty darn sparse, if you ask me. No, two more to go. Uh, more to gra- go. We, t- we kind of touched upon this a little bit in the previous episode of Myths, but... In space, there is, like, and you're far away in the middle of space, there is no gravity. I, there is some, yes? You're always feeling yeah. the pull of something. The further away it is, the smaller its pull on you, but you're always feeling, mm-hmm. so, even if it's imperceptible, there is still some gravity tugging you just a little bit. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So it's kind of like... <laughs> no um, studying. <laughs> You don't, you don't need me for this show. <laughs> Bye. Um, yeah. <laughs> on, on, in, in space, um, we have microgravity, uh, especially on the, on the International Space Station. It's called microgravity. So there's definitely the effect of weightlessness, but there's, it's not like there's nothing. Um, 
as you said, it's just a very weak force of gravity that's being counteracted by the movement of the International Space Station through space um, mm-hmm. that causes this effect. But yeah, any anywhere in space, if you, if you choose a point in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, there'll be distant objects that will be still very weakly pulling uh, in that direction. Right. So, but, but again, as I said before, with the black hole myth, it's not an active pulling. It's, it's kind of a passive pulling, like a, like a falling. It's like, it's like space-time will be slightly sloped downwards towards that object. Right. And weightlessness and no gravity, is, they're two separate things. The weightlessness we see on the space station is actually a prolonged falling. Exactly. The space station is always constantly in this perfect, perfectly maintained free fall around uh, the Earth. And it's always adjusting itself. So should that stop adjusting itself, then the passengers aboard will definitely feel gravity. Yes, exactly. <laughs> in a um, bad way. I think <laughs> in a fair, they would have a bad time. I think, I think I'll, uh, I'll hand pass this last one to you. Uh, would we explode in space without a spacesuit? No, we would not. Uh, now, if you expose your body to the emptiness of space, will you explode? No, you're not going to have a good day. It's going to become very painful quite immediately, um, and you are going to die in about a minute. Uh, it's... It's a a very bad thing that happens. Now, um, the beautiful part about this misconception that without a spacesuit exposed to the vacuum of space, you'll explode or you'll instantly die or whatever, uh, it's actually been proven that it's not true. If you suddenly get exposed to the freezing temperatures and the zero near vacuum of space, um, you can actually survive um there have been before astronauts get sent up into space and they wear their uh lovely uh spacesuits those spacesuits are tested in uh environments created here in a lab on earth that very accurately simulates the conditions of space and there have been instances a technician uh, testing a spacesuit had a hole in it and he went into a chamber that was incredibly cold incredibly Uh, it was a vacuum and he was exposed to the conditions of space albeit right here on earth and he was released they they realized it's a problem and 30 seconds later he was brought out and survived completely i mean he got hurt and it wasn't fun obviously but it was not good your your blood will begin to you will swell up because you're mostly water and water wants to freeze and when things freeze it wants to expand so you're going to swell up your blood will they, they say your blood will boil but i don't really think that's a good word for you'll, it you'll have a bad time let's see yeah. a very bad don't time. try this at home kids and one little science cinematic science fact that i like about this one little thing is for stanley kubrick's movie 2001 uh, a main character had to leave his little pod and get back into a spaceship a spaceship and he did not have a helmet and how could he have possibly done it um, stanley kubrick actually brought on a bunch of engineers from nasa and said is this possible and if so how would it be done and they very accurately depicted uh someone trying to 
jettison himself out of an airlock into another one, quickly shut the door and feel the airlock with air. And he had to hold his breath and he prepared himself. He actually did it. They actually did it quite, quite accurately, scientifically speaking. Obviously, no one's actually done that yet, but it is possible to survive a very brief uh, exposure <laughs> in space. There you go. <laughs> And the banging well, in the background of Ravi's office means it's time to go. Uh, yes, unfortunately, you have been listening to The Nerd and the Scientist, brought to you by Science Actually. I am one of your lovely co-hosts, uh, Kavi Rose. You can find me on uh, at Fun Fact Science on all of the good procrastination platforms. Uh, Benjamin, where can the people find you? I am a representative of Science Actually, the only representative of Science Actually, and you can find me primarily on Facebook, but I'm on all the other time wasters as well, Twitter slash X, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky Mastodon, Hive, LinkedIn, TikTok, if you'd like it. Daily Science Facts, come and enjoy, and thank you for listening to our show. We will see you next time. Thank you. See ya. Oh, well, you've listened to an episode of The Nerd and the Scientist, and half an hour of your life will now be forever spent hearing what Kavi and Benjamin think is funny. But fear not, as there are other timelines in other universes where you didn't listen to them, so you should be just fine.